Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of AOA, Agriculture of America. Thanks so much for joining us and making us part of your daily conversation. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coming up on today's show, a little bit of a different format than what we've been doing for a while now. Two different guests, two different topics, uh, but both uh, very important topics that I want to uh, talk about and just have a, a good conversation about. Coming up later in the show, we're going to be joined by Michael Doherty, Business Development Manager and Consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions, former economist at the Illinois Farm Bureau. We're going to talk about the overall farm economy and much more and things that are kind of wrapped into that overall as we near the end of the year. He's going to join us coming up for segment three and four today. First up, though, here as we kick off the show, we want to take a look at the uh, appropriations process and where things stand and some of the scenarios that are laid in front of us here as uh, we get ready to adjourn for the Christmas recess in D.C. and head to the new year. Joining us for that conversation, he is Senior Policy Analyst with the Bipartisan Policy Center, Andrew Louts. Andrew, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, great to be on and, and appreciate you having us. Let's just start with where things are at currently. As uh, many folks may may or may not be aware of uh, the continuing resolution that we had, and now we have kind of two different deadlines coming up in front of us to get appropriations done and essentially fund the government. January 19th, February 2nd are those two key deadlines here. And uh, it was kind of interesting to see this, you know, kind of split budget deadline, so to speak, come out here uh, in the last couple of weeks on Capitol Hill. Can you just get us up to speed on where things stand in terms of that right now? Sure, Jesse. So uh, Congress is is about to go on their their holiday break, uh, and and unlike in prior years when. Uh, you know, right up to mid-December, late December, we were coming up on a government funding deadline that Congress was going to need to address before they they went home for, for Christmas and Hanukkah and the holidays. Uh, we, we don't have that this year because, as you noted, uh, back in November, in mid-November, Congress passed this two-part continuing resolution. That's the term we use for just a stopgap bill that, that keeps the government open and prevents it from shutting down. And so, Four of the 12 regular spending bills that Congress is supposed to pass on an annual basis, uh, they expire on January 19th. That includes the Agriculture and Food and Drug Administration appropriations bill. That one expires on January 19th. Then the other eight of 12 expire two weeks later on February 2nd. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't note that these bills were technically due on October 1st. So Congress is several months late now. Uh, unfortunately, that's uh, that's more of a, um, a regular occurrence in the last uh, several decades. It's it's more the rule than the exception that Congress is is late with their spending bills. Okay, and that's a, a good point that you make that we are definitely well past the original deadline here. I, I know you and uh, some of your team at the Bipartisan Policy Center just uh, released a blog looking at some of the different scenarios in front of us here. And you mentioned we're hitting the Christmas recess, so. Really, uh, the crunch is going to be on when we come back from uh, the Christmas break here on Capitol Hill. Uh, three different scenarios you guys laid out. Let's let's go through these one by one. What was that first scenario that we could be looking at here, Andrew? You know how we talked about a continuing resolution, that stopgap bill that keeps government open. Uh, our first scenario is a, a long term or even a full year continuing resolution. Uh, this this is rare uh, in Congress, but it's actually not unprecedented. We have done this before where a series of continuing resolutions or CRs has just lasted the entirety of, of a fiscal year and Congress just never gets a, a full year spending bill done. And so that is a distinct possibility. If we get to January and February and the two parties are still uh, inseparably apart on uh, on overall spending levels in the government, it's very possible that they could uh, pass uh, another 
you know, several week or several month CR, or even at some point in the in the fiscal year, which runs from September first, uh, October first to September thirtieth, at some point in the fiscal year, Congress could just decide to give up and say, you know what, we're we're not getting full year spending bills done this year. We're just going to have that continuing resolution. And and what a CR typically does is it it continues spending at the prior year levels. So right now we are in fiscal year twenty twenty four. The agencies uh, in these 12 spending bills generally have authority to spend at 2023 levels rather than some new level. And, uh, you know, CRs are a regular feature of of congressional budgeting. Congress has passed 200 of them in the last 50 years. Uh, So so, uh, the agencies that are subject to it are definitely used to operating under a CR. But uh, that doesn't mean that they come uh, without cost. Uh, it, it does limit uh, federal agencies and departments, their ability to plan for the future, to uh, sometimes do new hiring or train their employees. So, so they are disruptive. Now, I know scenario two and three that you guys laid out are, are kind of similar, but there's a, a key difference here. So talk about the other two scenarios that you guys laid out that we could potentially see here on Capitol Hill. As your listeners may recall, uh, back in the uh, spring and summer, there there, there was a, a an agreement to um, uh, to address the debt limit, uh, and that mm-hmm. suspends the debt limit through January 2025. But what that deal also did is it set top line spending levels for the federal government for the 2024 and 2025 budget year. So right now we're in the 2024 budget year. 2025 budget year doesn't start until October 1st, 2024. But uh, the spending levels set by this agreement, um, uh, you know, there there was a dispute between House Republicans and between sort of the rest of Congress uh, over whether uh, that was uh, just a ceiling on federal spending and Congress could cut spending even more, or whether it was both a floor and a ceiling. It was essentially the number uh, that, that Congress was going to appropriate later in the year when they did their spending bills. And so House Republicans saw it as a, a ceiling and they they wanted to cut spending even more than what was provided in the debt limit deal. Uh, Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, House Democrats, and the Biden administration saw it as both floor and ceiling. They said this is the number that we're appropriating to. That disagreement uh, may be dissipating, and I offer a caveat on that, 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 you know, things can change in Congress on a dime. And so, you know, we may come back a week or two later, a month or two from now, and there's once again a disagreement over these top line levels. Uh, but so far, that those disagreements seem to be uh, uh, diminishing somewhat. And so the ground is shifting beneath our feet and the new battle between Republicans and Democrats is actually over these side agreements uh, uh, is what some call them. Uh, Others call them a handshake agreement that took place between President Biden and former Speaker Kevin McCarthy when the debt limit deal was agreed to. And and what these handshake or side agreements you know, they're they're not in legislative text. They're not in the text of the law, and so they can be difficult for 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 uh, even other lawmakers to understand. But but what they purportedly add up to is seventy billion in additional funding for non-defense items. So uh, Republicans uh, generally prefer robust defense spending. Democrats generally prefer robust non-defense spending. That seventy billion in additional spending is very important to Democrats, and and some House Republicans. Uh, are, are insisting now that that um, you know well this was not our agreement. There's a new Speaker of the House now. Speaker uh, former Speaker McCarthy is no longer in charge of the House. Uh, these side agreements shouldn't be adhered to, uh, and so that is potentially the next major fight that we'll see between Republicans and Democrats. And so scenarios two and three in our blog: one is funding at those debt limit deal levels with the side agreements, and the other fun uh, scenario is funding at those debt limit deals but without the side agreement. Well, good thoughts. We'll have more in our conversation with Andrew Louts from the Bipartisan Policy Center coming up after this here on AOA. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We work around it and we live around it every day. And we just become desensitized to what's around us. We go through safety training and, you know, we try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen, but you just never know. There are so many farmers that I think take for granted all of the underground utilities that are there. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. I mean, we kind to know what's out here, but all at the same time, you, you just always call. Farm Safe 811 starts with you. Whether you're installing drain tile or doing any sort of digging, always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked and have the depth confirmed. That's farming with care. But if a line does get damaged, go somewhere safe and call 911. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to farmsafe811.org. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA here today. Jesse Allen back with you as we continue our conversation with senior policy analyst from the Bipartisan Policy Center, Andrew Louts, here as we get into segment two of today's program. We're talking about uh, a new blog they have out looking at the different scenarios in front of us in terms of getting the appropriations process completed and getting uh, cer certain things done like a new farm bill, etc. Andrew, as we continue our conversation a lot of talk, especially in terms of agriculture and getting a new farm bill done, you know, with all of this budgetary process and kind of the mess that we have on our hands, it, you know, there's been a lot of talk that there's not a lot of new money available, if any, for a new farm bill. And I know that's one of the big chief concerns uh, for folks in agriculture as we watch this entire appropriations process play out and trying to get a new farm bill done, et cetera. Andrew, can you Talk about that aspect of it a little bit, because it just feels like across the board, it's going to be pretty tight to try and find a lot of new money for certain programs. Sure. And, and uh, you know, one thing I can tell you, Jesse, is that, uh, you know, that there hasn't sort of been a, a, a top line agreement uh, among all relevant parties, House Republicans, House Democrats, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, and the Biden administration over what the spending level should be for each of the 12 appropriations bills. And that, of course, includes uh, the, the, the first one alphabetically being the Agriculture and, and Food and Drug Administration bill. So we haven't achieved that agreement yet. But what we do have or what, what we can what we can uh, estimate or predict, um, you know, based on the different scenarios that we outlined in our blog is is what uh, spending for all non defense, uh, which includes uh, agriculture programs, will look like uh, under different scenarios.
scenarios. So let me walk through those really quick. Um, you know, scenario one, this full year CR, well, the difference between 2023 spending and 2024 spending is, is $0. It's, it's a continuing resolution for all of 2024 at 2023 levels. And so the downside of that, as you uh, sort of highlighted, Jesse, is that uh, there, there's no new additional spending. Uh, an additional downside is, is, you know, as everyone uh, listening knows, inflation has been eating into the, the um, you know, uh, everyone's budgets, including the federal government's budget. And so uh, a zero dollar spending change could actually uh, on an inflation basis be a cut uh, for some of these programs. Um, uh, Unfortunately, for for uh, for a lot of non-defense priorities, including agriculture priorities, the other scenarios um, uh, lead to a cut for non-defense. If there are, are side agreements, that sort of second scenario. So if it's if it's the levels agreed to in the debt limit deal plus the $70 billion of side agreements, well, non-defense is, is actually only seeing a $4 billion cut relative to last year. Uh, that may sound like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, uh, uh, but mm-hmm. relative to the entire you know, $1.6 trillion uh, uh, discretionary budget for the federal government, it's it's pretty much a drop in the drop in the bucket. Uh, that scenario three, though, is 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 particularly dicey because it's it's the debt limit deal, the the amounts agreed to in the debt limit deal without the 70 billion inside agreements. And so then the cut that we're looking at is is it's it's roughly that four billion dollars plus 70 billion. So it's about 74, 75 billion dollars. Um, and that is a an even more significant cut. And so uh, it's a challenging environment, I think, for agricultural programs that are funded by Congress on an annual basis, no matter how you slice it. But uh, the scenario where these side agreements are, are, are not um, are not made by both parties, uh, that, that is probably the most uh, where, where, where we'll see the most significant cuts. Well, Andrew, great thoughts. I know folks can uh, read this uh, blog that you guys released, bipartisanpolicy.org. They can uh, find it on your website and and read more about some of the uh, scenarios you've laid out. Just final thoughts from you. Obviously, we got a a bit of a, a rocky road ahead, I would say, the best way I could put it here as we try to navigate things on Capitol Hill. It's going to be a very busy couple of weeks ahead. What would you tell folks? Uh, remind them as they as they hear about this ongoing process, see the news headlines, read about it, hear about it, et cetera. What would you remind folks as we work through this budgetary appropriations process? Uh, well, you know, I'll I'll start just by saying that that um, this is evidence of our, our congressional budget process being broken. And, and that, unfortunately, is not a new problem. Our congressional budget process has been broken for decades. But this 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 chaos that we're talking about, we don't know exactly how the, the scenarios will play out. We don't know when there will be full year funding. Uh, again, this is a feature, not a bug of the system. And so Congress as a whole needs to all, all of these lawmakers need to take a look at the budget process, particularly what's not working, and, and spend the next couple of years trying to fix it. Uh, uh, so we think that's uh, uh, particularly important. The 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 last thing I'd note is that um, you know the, the most important thing Congress can do ahead of January nineteenth and February second, short of reaching a full year funding agreement that provides certainty for these agencies and departments and all of the um, you know, farmers and ranchers that benefit from agricultural programs that are funded by annual appropriations, the next best thing Congress can do is avoid a government shutdown. Uh, and so if that requires a continuing resolution, a CR to to keep the government open for even longer past January 19th and February 2nd, it's not the ideal scenario, but so be it. The worst potential scenario is, is a government shutdown because that would see about 60% of USDA staff uh, furloughed uh, during a shutdown. Only 40% of USDA staff would keep working. Uh, that is a scenario that that no one should want. No one in Congress, no one who interacts with the USDA on a daily or weekly basis. Um, so, so we will we will be looking first and foremost to avoid that scenario uh, in the new year. Well, folks can stay up to date with some of the issues and uh, learn more online, bipartisanpolicy.org. That's how you can read more and connect with the Bipartisan Policy Center. We've been talking with Senior Policy Analyst at the Bipartisan Policy Center, Andrew Louts. Andrew, thanks for the time here on AOA today. Really appreciate it. We'll get you back on the show again in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jesse.
Good stuff there. Once again, Andrew Louts with the Bipartisan Policy Center. Well, we have a little bit of breaking news that has uh, come out on Friday morning. The U.S. Treasury Department releasing guidance regarding the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act's Sustainable Aviation Fuel Tax Credit. The guidance clarifies that a soon-to-be-updated version of the Department of Energy's GREAT model will be among the methodologies used to determine eligibility for the tax credit. The administration is committed to finishing the GREAT model updates by March 1st of 2024. Now, in response to the Guidance Renewable Fuels Association President and CEO Jeff Cooper provided the following statement saying, quote, while there are important carbon modeling updates and details that still need to be worked out, we are cautiously optimistic that today's guidance could open the door to an enormous opportunity for America's farmers, ethanol producers, and airlines. The Biden administration is recognizing that the best way to meet ambitious SAF targets is to maximize marketplace flexibility, make use of existing low-carbon fuel assets, and stimulate innovation and competition across the entire supply chain. Now, RFA applauds the Treasury Department for ensuring the best available science and data on SAF will be recognized by specifying that the GREET model will be an acceptable methodology for determining eligibility Treasury has strengthened the credibility, transparency, and scientific robustness of the SAF tax credit program. We also thank Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and his team at USDA for their continuing efforts to ensure climate-smart farming practices, carbon capture and sequestration, and other technology advances will be recognized in the final SAF tax credit program, end quote. And Cooper also said RFA will remain actively engaged with the Biden administration as the next steps are taken to finalize the Greek model revisions, develop additional SAF pathways, and iron out other implementation details. The National Corn Growers Association said it is pleased as well that Treasury is embracing the Greek model. In a statement, Minnesota farmer and NCGA President Harold Woolley says, quote, given that GREET was created by the U.S. government and is widely respected for its ability to measure reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from the farm to the plane, we are encouraged that Treasury will adopt some version of this model. He goes on to say at the end of the day, we are eager to help the aviation sector lower its carbon footprint, and we look forward to working with the involved agencies over the coming months to ensure the final model helps us achieve that goal. Now, GREET, which stands for the Greenhouse Gases Regulated Emissions and Energy Use and Transportation, was developed by the U.S. Department of Energy to measure greenhouse emissions from the field to the car or plane. The decision by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been eagerly anticipated since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed in 2022. The law allocates tax credits for biofuels that can demonstrate that they cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% or more. Also, the American Carbon Alliance coming out with a statement following the news on Friday morning. Their CEO, Tom Bias, says, quote, Ethanol, the largest sustainable low-carbon fuel that yields advantages beyond conventional energy uses, GREET is the most realistic model in measuring the carbon intensity of biofuels. The American-made GREET model will allow ethanol to serve as the primary feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel and help the U.S. to become energy independent in the very near future. This change is the right decision and benefits American aviation, boosts energy security, and enhances our path to independence from foreign oil suppliers, end quote. So again, the uh, U.S. Treasury Department releasing guidance regarding the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act Sustainable Aviation Fuel Tax Credit by adopting a soon-to-be-updated version of the Department of Energy's GREET model among the methodologies used to determine eligibility for the tax credit. That news coming out on Friday morning. All right, on the way next, we're going to have a conversation about the farm economy as we near the end of the year. Former economist with the Illinois Farm Bureau, currently with Decision Innovation Solutions, Michael Doherty joins us next here on AOA. On the December episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we learn about the Consider Corn Challenge 4 and finding new uses for corn as a feedstock with Troy Schneider and Sarah McKay from NCGA's Market Development Action Team. The Consider Corn Challenge is an open innovation competition that market development hosts every other year. We look to establish biomaterial products and technology that utilizes corn. So we're looking into the future. A lot of our winners to date, they've spanned a variety of different industries 
industrial uses. So that's things from bio-based plastics to replacing petroleum-based chemicals with these bio-based corn-based sources instead. If you take all previous 15 winners from Consider Corn Challenge 1 through 3, if they reach full commercialization with their products, the potential for additional corn demand would be 3.4 billion bushel. Learn more about the winning projects online at ncga.org and join us the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind on AOA. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this Market Update. The grain and oilseed complex is quietly mixed to lower this morning, lacking any fresh fundamentals to support higher prices at this point, while the longer-term theme of commodity deflation remains entrenched for now. The soybean market was quiet overnight, with the bulls lacking any hard evidence that this year's adverse weather has resulted in a crop short enough to justify rationing U.S. demand with higher prices, but enough uncertainty and challenges ahead to keep the bears at bay as well. Now, the primary focus here remains on center-west Brazil, as much of the soybean crop in that area goes through the critical pod fill phase of development, with high temps running 95 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit, while rainfall amounts continue to remain scattered, uneven, and roughly 40 to 50 percent of normal levels for December. Now, there are some localized areas of total crop failure there, but there are also areas where crop production remains quite good, where they have been fortunate enough to get enough rain. This morning's models are showing very good moisture for the region 5 to 10 days out. Now we need to see if that rain will actually move forward in the forecast and verify this time after failing to do so so many times in the past. And Ukraine grain exports have reached 2.2 million metric tons in the first half of December, bringing the 23-24 marketing year total to 15.289 million metric tons. That's down from 19.959 million in the same period last year. However, the month-to-date shipments exceed the year-ago total of 2.1 million metric tons, so some progress is occurring there. Marketing year-to-date shipments include 6.5 million metric tons of wheat, 7.7 million metric tons of corn, and 0.9 million metric tons of barley. And as ships are still moving through Ukraine's humanitarian channel to keep grain flowing, farmer blockades are continuing to slow overland shipments across the border to the west, but the European Union remains committed to keeping both of these export channels open. The VIX continues to trade near 12 this morning. That's a historical low by any measure. And crude oil prices are leaking a few dimes lower. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. I'm Shanola Hampton. Every day, millions of people face hunger. Today, I will share with you some of their experiences. I'm stuck between paying for medications or paying for food. John from Maine. After paying my bills, I can buy groceries. It's sad to say, food comes last. Alice from Oregon. I thought pantries were for less fortunate people, but anybody could be less fortunate in a day or even a second. Claire from Virginia. The Feeding America network of food banks helps provide over six billion meals to people in need each year. No one should have to worry where their next meal will come from. Together, we can end hunger. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Well, joining us now here on AOA, we want to discuss the latest releases from USDA on farm sector income. There's a lot of talk about this as we near the end of the year and we look at interest rates. And I know a lot of farmers and ranchers have conversations with their ag bankers, etc. Joining us to talk about it, he is the business development manager and consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions in Illinois. Michael Doherty is with us. Michael, great to have you back on AOA with me. How are you? Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you p- giving me a chance to be back on your show again. Well, let's talk about this, Michael. Uh, USDA's Economic Research Service releasing its annual farm sector income forecast re- report uh, here on December 1. And even though the net farm income number is going to drop below the record high in 2022, still considered a pretty good number, $151.1 billion. At least that's how it's being touted, is it still a good number? I mean, 
what are your overall thoughts as, as you took a chance to kind of look through the, the farm sector income report and some of the chatter around this? What are your thoughts on that lower number for 2023? Well, I understand that, especially with the you know level of consolidation we have in ag business, the size of some of our national and international ag companies, they focus in on that the big number, the highest level, the drop in farm income. Uh, they're focusing in on that net cash farm income on average for uh, the country's uh, agriculture of being down, I believe it was 21% decrease over last year. Where I focus in on, I'm in Illinois. I'm an Illinois boy, grew up on a grain livestock farm only a couple miles from where I'm sitting. Um, you know, Illinois is a bit different. Uh, we are the least livestock dependent or livestock oriented um, state in the Midwest, although we do have, we ranked what fourth in hog production. So we do have a good uh, hog economy here in Illinois, but the rest of it, 80% of the total revenues of all agricultural receipts in the state of Illinois are, are corn and soybeans, just two crops, you know? So when you wanna know what's going on with farm income in Illinois, you drill into that corn and soybean number and the ERS report, what they have is uh, they break it down into regions and we're in what they call the heartland region and not too surprising to be the heartland. And uh, I've talked to their economists about what goes into your numbers that constitute a heartland uh, average farm income number. And they say it's not that far off the Illinois uh, farm income numbers, despite the fact that we don't have nearly as much livestock as, say, Nebraska or southern Minnesota or Iowa, for sure, a lot less than Iowa has. So looking at that, um, look at that farm, look at that Heartland region. Uh, mm -hmm. The Heartland region within the map that on that report by ERS on farm income was down only 12 percent from last year. So quite a bit less of a drop. And then you look at well, what are now they break it down into corn farms and soybean farms. So I've talked to their economists about that. Like, hey, we're 50-50 here. How do you how do you split that one? You know? Um, and they say, well, you know, they still they they've managed to do it, they're economists. And so what they mean is they a farm that it pre predominantly as its revenues coming from corn versus predominantly coming from soybeans. I'm not quite sure how they divide it up, but either mm -hmm. of those, the corn, the, what they're calling a corn farm in net cash farm income uh, for, uh, for their projection for 2023 is down 9%. So while the region's down 12%, corn farms are only down 9%. Soybean farms are only down 4% from last year. This is the reason why we can say pretty safely, Illinois farm income is going to be, uh, I'll get to one thing I've left off the table yet, but as far as grain farms, Illinois farm income is looking really, really great for mm -hmm. 2023. And that's a third year in a row. And we are sitting on a incredible increase in working capital because of that. Uh, I, I would hate to be a lender, really, uh, trying to find find people to give to make farm loans with in central Illinois, given these income numbers that we're having for three years in a mm -hmm. row. That I like what Seth uh, Meyer said, the chief economist uh, on his podcast. Uh, he said that, you know, um, and he was talking about the broader spectrum than just Illinois. He said that the last three uh, last three years were the highest consecutive years in 50 years for net cash farm income. Wow. So, you know, so where's all the sky is falling chicken little kind of fit into that. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> That's a good point. Well, and I think a lot of farmers have taken advantage of higher commodity prices. Uh, I know commodity prices have come down here in recent months, uh, but I, I think a lot of folks took advantage of those higher prices when they could. But on the flip mm -hmm. side, we got higher input costs out there that we have to think about. Uh, production expenses, you know, could yep cut into things a little bit it's kind of that balancing act uh, but to throw in their lower exports a lot more competition from yeah. brazil from argentina the strength of the u.s dollar there's a there's a lot of moving parts here i guess mike that's that's kind of what I, I, I'm, I think, I'm thinking about right now no you're absolutely right jesse and 
you know, especially on that export picture, I mean, in my 30 years as an ag economist and the last 20 of that here in central Illinois, uh, the it's it's been surprising to watch how much uh, we've become marginalized as a supplier to the world after Brazil. When I say marginalized, that how much Brazil has superseded us and how we're like backfilling after whatever Brazil fills. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, last year uh, they, they were looking at the possibility that Brazil would exceed us both with corn and soybean exports. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's everything's about Brazil and especially their relationship with China and the amount of infrastructure China has directly funded in Brazil, the business relationships they have in Brazil. It's, um, you know, it's going to be tougher going forward for, especially for Illinois grain farmers, because we're very dependent on that export market. We've got the Illinois river cuts right through the middle of our state. It gives us an advantage of getting to the port of new Orleans and through Panama canal to those Asian markets. And um, so we're even more whipsawed or dependent on those exports than, say, Iowa is, where they can feed a lot of their corn and soybean meal and, and to their livestock right there in the state. Um, and we don't have as much to do as that. Um, and I need to mention, we'll get back to that in a second. But, um, but anyway, yeah, it's going to be tougher going forward for us to pick up the highs in the international demand for corn, given that... Um, Brazil is going to be sitting there with their shopping cart ahead of us in the, in the line to, uh, to sell their, their product. I did want to mention kind of doubling back on that farm income piece. Um, I don't want to neglect to mention that hog production in net, net cash harm farm income for hog producers is down 37% from last mm -hmm. year. So that, we got a real, real problem with a uh, hog. I, hopefully that'll turn around. I, have you been to a supermarket and seen what pork is going for? Oh man. I, I, I tell you what, that, that hog market has been quite a tough one. And even cattle here towards the end of the year has gotten to be kind of a, a wild volatile market as well for our cattle ranchers here, just watching futures uh, kind of fall apart here the last few weeks. It's uh, well, It's been quite interesting in that protein sector as a whole. I'll throw a lump dairy in there too, Mike. It's It's been quite interesting. Well, and that ties back into this export picture, uh, particularly at least on a pork side. Um, and I'm hearing and reading about uh, the China demand and how, uh, how much guesswork is going on for 2024 as to whether or not we're going to be, what, how much that pork will export to China. And uh, so, and you know, when they come into the market, it can really make a huge difference uh, on things like that. But, uh, but yeah, um, you know, we've got the strength of the U.S. dollar uh, that is tied to uh, our monetary policy. Um, so that's been from what most economists, uh, looking at that, that's been the single biggest barrier for, uh, us grains for getting, uh, our grains and our oil seeds sold out to the world market has been the strength of the U S dollar. And that's where it's been, where Brazil has had a huge uh, advantage over us. And that's not going to go away from what I can see. The other thing I found very interesting, I don't know if you caught it, Jesse, but um, the work that uh, Joanna Calusi and some others there at University of Illinois Farm Doc team did on comparative um, direct costs on soybean production in mm. Brazil versus versus Illinois. So it's very, did you see that? It was very I, interesting. I, I think I saw the headline and I didn't dive into yeah. that too much, but that is well, quite interesting, Mike. Yeah, they um, their their direct costs are significantly higher than uh, Illinois soybean producers' uh, costs, okay. uh, and um, with the exception of I think it was seed costs, our seed costs are higher than theirs by maybe nine percent or something like that. Everything else was more expensive on their side. Down and it was Mato Grosso, so it was the mm -hmm. heart of soybean production. So you look at that and you think, well, then how are they eating our lunch on the export market if their cost of production are higher than ours? Well, for two reasons. One is the strength of the dollar gives them a big advantage, but the other one is their land prices, of course, are, are a lot less. So, so in a way, their overhead costs is where we lose to them, um, despite mm -hmm. the efficiency that we have here uh, in central Illinois with our soils and our uh, channel to the port of New Orleans. 
Well, definitely good thoughts and uh, appreciate uh, the conversation here today. Again, we're being joined by Michael Doherty, business development manager and consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions in Central Illinois, former senior economist for the Illinois Farm Bureau. Michael, uh, going to have you hang with us here for uh, a few minutes. We're going to talk a little bit more coming up here in segment four before we wrap up today's program. And again, Thank you for joining us and making us part of your day, of course, as always here on AOA Agriculture of America. We are going to continue our discussion about the farm economy as a whole, and i got a few other things I want to talk to Michael about. We're going to do that on the way next. We'll be back with more on Agriculture of America right after this. A promise is potent. Born of intention, fueled by commitment, it's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, We've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours, at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people. A neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When was the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're joined by Will Stafford, a member of the CHS Government Affairs team in Washington, D.C., to give us a farm bill and legislative update. Will, the 2018 farm bill was recently extended for a year. What does that mean for farmers? We think that that's a good thing. Um, Rather than a short-term extension, like a month or two, this does give some certainty for farmers and agribusinesses that have been using some of these programs for five years now. And it also gives members of Congress uh, plenty of time to get a five-year extension done. Will, when do you expect the new farm bill to be approved? You know, it's hard to say right now. Generally, when Congress gets a new deadline, they like to push it up until that deadline. But leaders in both the House and the Senate, such as House Chairman G.T. Thompson of the House Agriculture Committee, have said many times that they are going to continue the work, continue through the end of this calendar year, and and really hit the ground running early on in 2024. So I'm still confident that with the leadership in place in Congress on the agriculture committees in both the Senate and the House, they will get a five-year bill done. Hopefully, they can get it done earlier in the year. Um, But if it has to go a little longer, I still think they do get one done. What are priorities for CHS and its owners in the new farm bill? So we kind of have two buckets of legislative priorities. One are more farmer-focused priorities on behalf of our owners, things that we hear about as important to them. First and foremost is always protecting crop insurance, making sure that there's a strong safety net program in there with Title I commodity programs uh, like the ARC and PLC program, and that they're working as intended for our growers. Number two are more areas that are important to us as a business. So we look at things like the trade title, trade promotion programs, things along those lines. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home? 
and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And we continue our conversation here on AOA with Michael Doherty. He is a business development manager and consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions located in central Illinois and former senior economist for the Illinois Farm Bureau. We've been talking about the overall farm economy, some of the uh, latest data out earlier in the month of December from USDA, talking about the high interest rate environment that uh, many farmers are dealing with and concerned about and just the overall kind of tone of uh, the ag economy here as we near the end of 2023. Well, let's continue our conversation with Michael Doherty and Mike with the high uh, dollar with the dollar and the high interest rate environment. I think that's a good spot for us to kind of button up our conversation here today. Mm. Uh, A lot of farmers, you know, a lot of farmers have had good incomes as you alluded to and haven't uh, had the need to necessarily go out there in in some cases and and stretch uh, those operating loans uh, too far etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know as as farmers work through some of that uh, those cash reserves and look at this high interest rate environment i know there's a lot of talk that the fed is going to start cutting rates in 2024 but we don't know if that's for certain i i wonder what could lie ahead our farmers and ranchers here just in this current economic environment? Well, that's a good question, Jesse. And I think that's almost, it's not a big wild card, but it's a bit of a wild card is what will the feds do? And my bets are with the conservative wing of the Federal Reserve Board governors and their economists in that we do not expect the the feds to want to cut interest rates. That's going to only, that what would help the feds be able to make a case for cutting interest rates would be if coming into January after the Christmas uh, season of spending, we always have a lull in the U.S. economy. It would have to be a big one. We'd have to have a big drop off in January and February, basically a recession. And with that, that drops the demand for money. And when you drop the demand for money, you drop interest rates. Interest rates are the price of money. So, um, We'll see if that happens, and so that would be that would give uh, farmers a break on the interest rates. But otherwise, the outlook is that expect these interest rates that we have today, expect them to continue, uh, because we are still at three and a half percent inflation rate. Uh, it depends on which way you, you measure it. Uh, um, that is not back down to what it needs to be. Um, you know, I'm a baby boomer. You're still in a situation where we're the second largest cohort population in the United States after the millennials, and we've lost 20% of our disposable, our purchasing power over the last uh, three, three and a half years. So, you know, and it's going to continue to be eroded, and we're on fixed incomes, or a lot of my counterparts are. I'm still working, but a lot of them are on fixed income. And so, um, so this uh, inflation is still quite a problem for a large portion of our population. And as long as it's a problem, the feds have an incentive to not decrease interest rates because they really need to have this economy uh, flatten out and get uh, get softer in order to let aggregate supply catch up to aggregate demand. And I wonder too, and I, I worry that a lot of farmers and ranchers are going to uh, make some tough decisions in terms of uh, getting ready to plant a 2024 crop here in the U.S. in this high interest rate 
environment, environment right now, Mike. Yeah, in, in the ones that are going to be affected, and I do feel for them, are your younger farmers. If you look at some of the work that um, FBFM, Farm Business Farm Management System, um, <clears throat> it puts out their data here in Illinois, uh, you'll see that the, the older farmers, uh, over age of 55, the majority of them, the grain farmers, uh, really have very uh, little need to be borrowing operating money uh, overall. You just look at how flush they are. There's some that are borrowing money. I don't mean to say, you know, say that it's uh, that they shouldn't be or whatever, but let's just say overall on average, they have a lot of working capital uh, so that they don't have to borrow. But the younger guys, yeah, they've got uh, they've got to borrow. That's the age bracket where everybody is in debt when you're under the age of 30, under the age of 40. Um, and so they're borrowing. And so these interest rate costs are going to really hurt our younger farmers who are trying to come up uh, in the on the ladder of um, agricultural industries here. Well, Mike, great thoughts uh, on the overall uh, economy and the ag economy and farm income. Before we let you go here today, anything final you would say or or reiterate to folks listening in as they're kind of watching this uh, current environment that we're dealing with right now? I would say, uh, you know, just it was some of the – I'm not sure. It'll be interesting to see in 2024, Jesse, are we going to top out on farmland prices? That's the biggest, mm -hmm. that's one of the big ones. I mean, they, they were up again, what, another 5% in Illinois and Indiana and Iowa were up even higher year over year. Incredible, incredible to see that demand. But how much of that demand is driven by farmers being flush? 50% of all farmland is purchased by other farmers. And so it's going to be interesting to see if we ever, if we can get to the point where the farmers are a little less flush, where they've maybe you know, get their working capital down and they're not willing to bid up that acreage to see whether or not this is topped out. And also, I think the other wild card, I really looking forward to 2024 will be have cash rents finally topped out. They move hand in hand with these farmland prices. And that has really added to the cost price squeeze for all the farmers in, and especially here in Illinois, where 80, 85 percent of our acreage in central Illinois is rented. And about half of that is cash rented. So. So those are the sort of things I'll be watching at, looking for. Well, great thoughts. And I know we'll have another conversation with you again in the future about those topics and more. Appreciate the time. Former senior economist for Illinois Farm Bureau, currently business development manager and consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions there at Central Illinois, Michael Doherty. Mike, thanks for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jesse. Enjoyed it. Have a good Christmas. And once again, Michael Doherty there with Decision Innovation Solutions joining us here today on AOA. Earlier in the show, Andrew Louts from the Bipartisan Policy Center. Appreciate both uh, those gentlemen joining us here for extended conversations on today's program. Well, we are about out of time. Coming up on our next AOA, we are going to look at markets with Darren Newsom from Bar Chart. We'll talk weather with DTN meteorologist John Baranek. We'll also have a conversation with Kurt Kovarek, Vice President of Federal Affairs with Clean Fuels Alliance America. No doubt there's been plenty of ethanol and biofuel, biodiesel-related news that has uh, come out here just in the last couple of days. And uh, we'll be talking about some of that and much more coming up on our next episode as we'll get joined by Kurt uh, from Clean Fuels Alliance America. We're out of time, though, here today on AOA. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. On the December episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we learn about the Consider Corn Challenge 4 and finding new uses for corn as a feedstock with Troy Schneider and Sarah McKay from NCGA's Market Development Action Team. The Consider Corn Challenge is an open innovation competition that market development hosts every other year. We look to establish biomaterial products and technology that utilizes corn. So we're looking into the future. A lot of our winners to date, they've spanned a variety of different industries industrial uses. So that's things from bio-based plastics to replacing petroleum-based chemicals with these bio-based corn-based sources instead. If you take all previous 15 winners from Consider Corn Challenge 1 through 3, if they reach full commercialization with their products, the potential for additional corn demand would be 3.4 billion bushel. Learn more about the winning projects online at ncga.org and join us the first Wednesday of every month for the Monthly Grind on AOA. Everyone has a community to lean on, a neighborhood, school, kids' teams, 
where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov.